You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends, and welcome. I'm glad you could join me. My guest today is Vincent McGarry. He is a safety and control systems engineer who was working on the largest project of its kind in China when his team learned of the coronavirus. He describes in great detail what happens next. He said it was like being in a movie, and he expected Will Smith to walk out at any moment. (laughs) Everyone in his hotel had bolted, but he wasn't allowed to leave because he had surrendered his passport, something you're advised never to do. But sometimes you can't help it. You don't have a choice. I've been there. It sucks. And all you can do is wait. So he was the only person left in a huge Marriott. He had his mask on upside down. (laughs) There was nobody on the streets. So he talks about his quarantine. And after telling that story, I ask him about an incident in Saudi Arabia when he was freaked out while traveling. We also talk about Chernobyl. Because Vince and I had watched the Netflix show together last year which was great because he's very educated on nuclear power and where that's headed. Uh, We don't spend a lot of time on that. But later in the episode, I ask about his retirement plans, which hopefully are not affected by what's going on in the market right now, which is just nuts. Some of the index funds are down as much as 7% today. I'm recording this intro on March 9th, 2020. Then I ask for marriage advice, advice that he would give someone my age. He shares regrets that he has from when he had young kids. And of course, I ask fun questions at the end. I should say Vince also happens to be married to my mom. They've been married for over 25 years. I've said for a long time that he is the smartest guy I know. So I've been picking his brain since I was a teenager. And so it's quite a treat to be able to share him with my listeners. So please enjoy. Let's bring him on. Vincent, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. No problem. Glad to be here. Tell me, where were you the first time you heard about coronavirus? I had just landed in Shanghai. I was due to be there for about 10 days to get my residence permit. And I was actually kind of excited about being there because it was also the beginning of the Chinese New Year. So I was kind of looking forward to being able to see what was going on with the with the festivities and so forth. I'd been in the hotel about probably two to three days, and the the news of the virus actually kind of was picking up some steam and it was getting a little bit more press. And I would say by the third or fourth day that I was there, I noticed that there were a lot fewer people walking around in the streets in the hotel. I felt like uh, there just wasn't the excitement that I expected to see <laughs> for a Chinese New Year. Uh, plus, I was in the part of Shanghai that's very similar to probably... Times Square in New York, for example. So there would have been, you know, literally thousands of people roaming around. And I would look out of my hotel window and I noticed well, there weren't thousands of people. There were not even hundreds of people. You know, there were people scattered. So that's when I first kind of knew that this was probably something that was going to be, you know, serious. and wasn't going to just blow over in a day or two. Mm. And were you then quarantined to your room and you couldn't leave? No, at that time... There wasn't any quarantine. Um, I don't think they really knew what was going on. They're just, 
you know, people just, I think, out of abundance of caution, started protecting themselves by staying in. But there wasn't any mandate for me to stay in my room or, or anything. In fact, I went out and walked around um, that area. The stores were open, surprisingly. The malls and the, and the different shops and stuff were open. Restaurants were open. There just wasn't anybody there. Mm. It's kind of freaky, huh? Like a zombie movie? Yeah, I kind of expected to see Will Smith walking down the street <laughs> with a shotgun. Um, I walked into one of the malls that was beautiful. I mean, you can imagine in downtown Shanghai, just just, just fabulous, awesome um, stores and malls and stuff. I walked into one that was several stories tall, probably four or five stories inside the mall and you could see up it was like a, a big atrium in the middle and i just looked around there wasn't anybody there so i i just kind of walked from store to store and there would be people um workers in the stores just kind of standing there staring at you as you walked by you know <laughs> i don't know if they were hoping you were come in or hoping you'd stay out um were they but, wearing masks uh yeah a few of them were wearing masks not everybody was at that at the beginning of it um it wasn't clear because in those asian countries i've been you know to korea and taiwan and and now china um and japan the asian um culture is more to wear masks i mean they do that quite frequently so i i saw quite a few people wearing them but i wasn't sure if it was just sort of a normal thing that they were doing or if it was specific to this uh, coronavirus issue but I actually thought, well, you know, it's probably a good idea. Maybe I should get a mask. So I went to a couple of stores nearby that were kind of like pharmacies, and there weren't any to, to be had. Um, I couldn't find any anywhere. So, so do I, you use a shirt at that point? <laughs> well, I just hoped I'd be okay, I guess. <laughs> actually, I did go down to the um, concierge at the hotel and asked if they had any masks, and he did give me one. Um, so, But it was a single-use mask, so I wasn't sure exactly... And, it, and I was kind of hearing also at that time that the masks were kind of ineffective. And I didn't know whether wearing a mask was really more kind of for show, to, to, you know, to show, make people think that I, you know, was worried or I was trying to protect them or whatever, because I didn't really think it was really going to do me a lot of good, to be honest. So a little background for listeners. What were you doing in China? Well, I'm working over there. Um, I'm on a project right now where... We are building some some fairly large process modules um, at three fabrication yards in China. These big modules will get shipped um, down to the Texas Gulf Coast later in the year, at the end of this year, the beginning of next year. And then they'll put them all together kind of like Legos, and it'll turn into a chemical plant. And what is your job function? I'm a control systems engineer, safety systems and control systems so my area is basically to make sure that all the software gets programmed correctly, and we do a lot of testing of the software, the control system software, uh, to make sure that it's all working properly so that when we go to startup that, you know, the process can be controlled in, in a safe manner and all the contingencies for safe operation are in place. How long after you learned about coronavirus did you stay in China? Okay, so I was in Shanghai for this 10-day period. So about, like, as I mentioned, three to four days into it, I, it you know, they weren't um, restricting travel or anything at that time. So I spent my 10 days, uh, went back from Shanghai to the town where I'm working, which is a town called Yantai. Um, I got to Yantai, went to my hotel, and then the next morning, I and about uh, six or seven of my colleagues 
every morning they pick us up on a bus and take us from our hotel to the work site, which is about a 45 minute drive. Um, so the very first morning that I was back after my 10 day stay in Shanghai, we couldn't get to the site, uh, to the yard. They stopped us. They Who's did a, they? the, well, <laughs> who knows, right? It was, <laughs> it was, um, an official looking vehicle and there were two or three guys with masks on. And uh, at that point they weren't really wearing hazmat suits, but you could tell that they were checking for, for the virus because, you know, they took our temperatures basically, but then they turned us around. And of course, they were speaking Chinese. Fortunately, our driver was a Chinese national. So he he obviously understood what they were saying and he would translate for us. And they basically told him that we weren't permitted to enter that uh, town. So the town that the fabrication yard in is actually in a different town called Penglai. So that the border between Yantai and Penglai was closed. So they basically turned us around and sent us back to the hotel. So that was really kind of the first inkling that this was really going to be something that was going to impact us. Part of the work permit process, I should have mentioned this earlier, I guess, um, was I had to turn my passport in in order to get a work permit. So when you do that, they give you a temporary travel document to travel um, domestically in, in the country. So I was able to travel from Shanghai back to Yantai without my passport. But obviously, in order to evacuate China, I needed my passport. So this was about the beginning of the time where everybody was kind of coming to the sensibility that, hey, maybe we better leave until this blows over. So most of my colleagues did that. You know, they had their passports. They were smarter than I. <laughs> and they, uh, they were able to get travel arrangements and, and left which left me at the hotel pretty much by myself. I was the only only guy there for about 10 days. Once I got my passport back, I was out of there the next day. Um, I flew back home. On, I got my passport on a Friday, and I left on Saturday. You must have been really kicking yourself for giving up your passport, huh? Well, at that time, I kind of was. And I even had tried to get a hold of the, um, the U.S. consulate in Beijing, and I also called... Um, there was another consulate in Shanghai to see if I could get an emergency passport or whatever to travel. What I discovered was you can't talk to a human being. Um, when you when you call them, there's a phone menu system that's absolutely formidable. You can't get through it. You know, you can't speak to a person. All they do is go through a menu of items if you're waiting for a passport that you've applied for or, you know, Lots of things that didn't apply to me. I just wanted to see if I could get an emergency passport. The only thing I could figure out was I would have to apply for a second passport. But that would take literally weeks to get as well. So, I mean, I was kind of stuck. What were you thinking when the guy stopped you to check your temperature? Like, were, were you guys talking amongst yourselves like, oh, shit, what is happening right now? Well, the guys that I was traveling with had already done it for a couple of days because I was coming back from Shanghai. So they kind of briefed me on, you know, we're going to get stopped at the border and they'll take our temperature, but then they'll let us pass and, and go on to the yard. It's no big deal. Did you have to step out of the vehicle? No. Uh, there was a guy that came in. It's a small, like a minibus. had a, a side door that kind of slid open. So we just opened the door and then he came with this, looked like a little gun <laughs> that he pointed at our foreheads. <laughs> right. oh, okay. Temperature. Gun. That was a temperature. Yeah. Um, so now it just took a couple of minutes. He just came in and real quickly kind of went around. Everybody in the car took their temperature and 
and then told the driver, uh-uh, <laughs> turn around. And so they're looking for high temperatures? Yeah. There's some criteria, whatever it is. Of course, over there, it's, um, you know, they use Celsius, not Fahrenheit. I think it's 98.6 is something like 37 mm-hmm. C. So they're, yeah, they're just checking to see if you have an elevated temperature. Fortunately, no, nobody on our bus had a cold or <laughs> did they let you know what your temperature was like no. give you a thumbs up or anything no no oh just, man if they went on to the next guy you just said <laughs> <laughs> okay so take me from there you go back to your hotel and then are you in contact with your company about what to do next i had my company laptop so i was plugged into what was going on as much as i could be uh the company was pretty good about giving updates we had uh teleconferences a couple of times a day with various management um, people keeping us up to date on what was going on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I never felt like I, w- I was abandoned or anything like that. I mean, when I say I was the only one at the hotel, I probably was. But we have a lot of guys over there staying at various places. So I'm at the Marriott. The, the, there's several guys at the Sheraton. There's several guys at the Hyatt. So I wasn't the only guy left behind by any means. I, I just happened to be the only guy at the, Sher- at, or at the Marriott. Um, as I, I would walk out of my room and go down the hall, get on the elevator, go down to get a meal or something. And literally there was nobody around for 10 days. I felt like they were running this hotel for me. You had the whole buffet to yourself? Well, such that it was. When I first got there, the buffet was spectacular. Um, they had Eastern food, you know, Chinese food, Western food, just you name it. It was there in the buffet. It was really, really good. As time kind of went on, it got... To where there was less and less of that sumptuous feasting. In fact, after about after I'd been there about five days, the buffet kind of went away completely, and they went to a fixed menu. Kind of like during Mardi Gras, you go to restaurants around here, and you can't get the full menu. They give you five choices, right? And that's kind of what this was. So you'd walk into the buffet, and they give me a a one page menu with pictures on it of five different meals, only one of which was sort of recognizable, being spaghetti. Uh, the other four were various um, renditions of some kind of a Chinese dish. Mm-hmm. So every day I would put those five into rotation and <laughs> get something different every day. <laughs> and that was about it. They did have room service. I was able to order room service, but it was there again. It was kind of restricted. It wasn't a, a big choice. You could get an omelet. You could get pasta. You could get um, some some Chinese dishes. And that was about it. Mm-hmm. For listeners, we're recording in New Orleans two days after Mardi Gras. So there's the, the Mardi Gras reference. At any time, did you feel fear? No, not really. I felt actually I was in probably the safest place I could be. I was in a hotel with no nobody else around, you know, I, and I could control who I was around. Um, I did walk out of the hotel. The hotel is in a beautiful spot right on the beach. There's a beautiful beach right there. So I, I, and I walked up and down the beach and, of course, it was very cold, Um the temperature was in the high 20s, I would say, Well, during this time I was there. Fahrenheit? Yeah. Yeah, it was cold. Um, you know, below freezing. So, you know, and it very windy being right there on the on the ocean. So it was pretty cold. So, I, I, you know, I go out occasionally, bundle up, and go out and walk on the beach a little bit just to get outside. But there again, nobody, nobody around. So I didn't feel at risk at all. I mean, uh, you know, I kind of felt like the last place I wanted to go was to the airport where there was going to be thousands of other people coming from places that I didn't know where they had been getting on planes and stuff. So probably the first time I actually felt apprehensive was when I left. 
you know, because I had to go to the airport and mingle with people. Uh, but as I discovered when I got to the airport, uh, there was nobody there either, <laughs> which was pretty amazing to me because this was a Yantai is a is a very large town. There's I don't know the exact population, but I want to say there's several million. So it's it's a very large town, very large airport. Um, when I went to the airport to leave, I had a driver. Um, there was no other cards on the road. When I got to the airport, very few people. And of course, as you're walking into the airport, they were taking your temperature, um, you know, doing the various security checks that they normally do. You know, I walked up to the window. There was nobody in line. I got my ticket. I went to the gate. There was maybe 10 people on this flight, you know, from my the first leg of my return home was from uh, Yantai through Seoul, Incheon, um, to um, Dallas, and then to New Orleans. So every leg of the flight got more and more people. But that first flight from Yantai to Incheon was, um, in fact, they had to segregate uh, people on the plane. They put a few in the back and a few in the front just to balance the load <laughs> on the plane. So it was a very strange flight. And everybody, of course, was wearing masks. And that was probably the time when I felt the most risk, you know, because I was around people that I hadn't been around before, didn't know where they'd been or anything like it. And were you the only person not wearing a mask? Oh, I was wearing a mask. Oh, you got I had, one. I was still wearing that single-use mask that I'd gotten <laughs> 10 days earlier. <laughs> why, why would it be only single-use? That's what it said. I said single-use. I don't know. I, you know, I suppose you're supposed to wear it one time and throw them away and get another At one. At least but, you could turn it inside out. Well, that would probably be, be risky for everybody I did else. have it upside down a couple of times, but that was kind of weird, too, because they have this little thing that goes over your nose. and hmm. Anyway, when you got it on wrong, it feels funny. So your Marriott was in the same city as the airport, Yingtao? Yeah, Yantai, yes. Yantai. How do you spell that? Y-A-N-T-A-I. Okay. Right on the uh, coast of China, I guess it would be the east, eastern coast, um, right across from Korea. So the, the flight from there to Seoul is uh, an hour, something like that. Tell me about how you found out you were going home. How I found out? That you were coming home. Well, it was my decision. I mean, I, I, like I say, I was just waiting for, for my passport. So mm -hmm. as soon as I got my passport, I made arrangements to leave right away. So, uh, and it, the company, everybody expected that. I mean, I wasn't a big surprise. You know, people were still, you know, like I said, because I didn't have my passport, I was one of the f few people who kind of got left behind. But everybody who was going to leave had left. We still have some folks over there that never did leave that are still there, that are in their hotels under quarantine they can't go anywhere so i'd be in the same boat if i hadn't left i'd still be sitting there at the at the marriott have there been any reports of folks in yentai that have contracted coronavirus yeah if you go to these government websites to talk about the various countries that have confirmed cases and so forth it shows in china all the provinces and then within all those provinces where all the confirmed cases are and and all the fatalities Yantai is in Shandong province, which is quite a ways away from um, Wuhan. Wuhan, which is where yeah the epicenter was. I would say it's about eight or 900 miles away. Um, but there were confirmed cases in Shandong province. And I don't remember exactly how many, not, not that many in comparison to the rest of China. Um, but I want to say eight, maybe eight or 10 had been confirmed in Shandong province. There were no fatalities. That number probably going up by now i'm not sure i haven't really kept up with it since i've been home and so you traveled from yintai to seoul 
South Korea is a high risk area from what I understand. It is now. At that time, it wasn't. But since I've been home, yeah, um, Seoul, there's a couple of areas within South Korea that have kind of turned into hot spots, and then Japan also. So they've told us when we elect to return, not to travel through Japan or South Korea because China is not accepting any flights from those two spots right now. Mm. And I noticed yesterday Japan closed its schools through the end of March. Right. They're also talking about possibly scaling back or maybe even canceling the Olympics um, coming up this summer. So, yeah, it's quite a big deal. And I know the stock market now is down about 10% over the last three or four days. Right. Um, So they're expecting things to get worse. So you are a control systems engineer. That takes you to some pretty interesting places around the world, huh? Well, it has. I mean, any kind of um, engineering, discipline engineering, electrical engineering, process engineering, when you work for a company that builds these large projects, it does take you to some pretty far-flung places. I got out of college in uh, 1980, so I started in 1980. Since that time, yeah, I've been been quite a few places. Your career started the year my life started. (laughs) Well, that's nice. Don't make me feel too old. (laughs) So where is the first foreign land you visited and what did you, what was your experience? Well, the first place that I went was Saudi Arabia. I'd started working in, like I said, 1980. I was on a project for Aramco, which is the Saudi national oil company. I was working in the engineering side of this project and got the opportunity to go to the field for the first time. So I was a young engineer, brand new. Um, So me and I would say two or three of my colleagues went to Saudi for a three-month hitch during startup of uh, facilities over there. We were building these gas oil separation plants kind of in remote spots in Saudi. So my first project was, yeah, very intense, actually. Um, I wasn't, didn't know what to expect. You know, when you go to Europe and places like that, it's different, but you know, Things are familiar. When you go to Saudi Arabia, nothing is familiar. It was like going to Mars. <laughs> so I was there for three months. It, it, it was interesting. I was kind of in a pretty remote location, a um, place called Kures, which is really nothing more than a village, kind of a four corners um, stop with Bedouins and camels and goats and whatnot, and lots of uh, wellheads. <laughs> mm-hmm. they, were, they were making a lot of oil back then. Are they paying you a lot of money to go there? Well, this is 1980. Um, I was not making a lot of money by today's standards, but it, I was make I was doing okay. Like relative to your peers, for you to be willing to to go to so- a place like Saudi Arabia, they must have uplifted your pay a little bit. Well, that all works in a kind of funny way. It depends on the circumstances that you go to places. If you go there on business trips where you're not actually relocating, you don't usually get extra money. You just it's part of the job. If you're relocating to some place for maybe six months or a year or longer, then you go under some sort of a relocation plan and you do get an uplift. Um, different countries have different percentage uplifts depending on you know things like quality of living and so forth that the country you're going to. So when I went to Saudi, I didn't make any extra money as an uplift or anything like that, but I did work a lot of overtime. I was, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in one of these kind of places, there's nothing else to do but work. So you end up doing, you know, working a lot. And you probably end up bonding with your coworkers quite a bit because you spend so much time with them. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we you're you're kind of all flung together in a a camp environment where there's just trailers and you're living in you know in a small group 
So yeah, you do you, you you do tend to get kind of close to the guys you're working with because you're spending so much time with them. Do you remember the guys you traveled with in those early days? I do remember one guy in particular. I think there were three of us that went over in this one hitch, myself and these two two other guys that were like designers. One of them was a real redneck, just a real hick. I don't think he'd ever been out of Texas. Mm. I don't think he'd ever been out of Houston. You know, anyway, we got over there and he didn't really have any teeth. filter. <laughs> well, he didn't have any teeth either. He, we called him Snaggletooth. He had <laughs> he had maybe four or five teeth. He kind of, he walked with a limp. I don't know what happened to his leg. He talked with a real southern drawl, you know. Hey, Hoss. You know, everybody's name was Hoss. So when we got over there, one of the things we discovered real quickly was in this culture, they pray a lot. And they call to prayer something like six times a day. So when you're in the city, um, when they do that, when they call to prayer, I mean, you, you you're very... Well, when you're brand new to it, you don't know what to do. You tend to be very cautious, but not him. So we would be walking down the street and we'd hear the call to prayer. They'd be up at the top of one of these minarets talking, you know, calling everybody in. And he'd just start laughing and saying, oh, I guess they're going to go pray again. You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, you just felt like you wanted to shrivel down and hide under a rock or something because, well, who knows what would happen. They'd probably put you under the jail if they thought you were mocking you know their religion and so forth so i got a little i was nervous traveling around with this guy um, is everybody covered up in clothing wise you're talking about clothing wise. well certainly the women yeah are all very covered up they wore the black um head to toe with the, with the veils and so forth all of them all except western women you'd see a few western women walking around but yeah pretty much yeah all all the saudis were like that the men of course have their uniform that they wear the 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 white robe with the with the different multicolored tablecloth looking head and head. same deal it's like 90 percent of men walking around oh yeah yeah wow. more, more, probably yeah probably more than that one of the things that was interesting we were walking around and uh they had told us do not take any pictures of of women i mean this was like a no-no um you can kind of take pictures of different things if you do it sort of cautiously and not in in sort of overtly but the women are covered up why would you want to take a picture of them anyway well i don't know it's just sort of a cultural thing i wasn't i wasn't taking pictures of them but the reason that my friend wanted to take a picture was because a bus had pulled up and we didn't really realize all about the restrictions between men and women and and how women were treated over there but we noticed when the bus stopped it had a partition in the middle of it with two a door on either side so in the rear of the bus the women were getting on the rear the men were getting on the front and they were there's a partition in the bus to keep them separated. Well, we'd never seen anything like this before. So my friend had his camera, and he just kind of picked it up and took a couple of shots. Well, at that moment, there were two or three. We didn't know who they were, but they looked like militia of some sort. They could have been police. They could have been military. They could have been. Uh, we didn't know who they were, but they had guns and uniforms. <laughs> so they came running across the street. They grabbed the camera out of my friend's hand. He had a really nice sort of a, probably a Minolta or Canon, you know, 35 millimeter, nice camera back in the day. Um, they they were berating him in, you know, Arabic. We didn't know what they were talking about, but it sounded really bad. <laughs> um, they grabbed his camera. They opened it. They took the film out. They, they exposed all the, the film, threw it on the ground, threw his camera on the ground, and then they just kind of, 
were still muttering in Arabic and, and kind of walked off. And we were like, we were just frozen. We didn't, we were, we didn't think we would ever get out of Saudi Arabia, <laughs> but that sort of passed. And of course, Snaggletooth thought it was funny. <laughs> I was only in that city with this is Dahran. We were there for maybe two or three days coming into the country and then two or three days when we were leaving. So we really weren't in the city that much um, to spend any time walking around. But what little we did was very eerie, very weird. The interesting thing about the women was we, I noticed is we, when we'd walk behind them, they were wearing the, the black veils and in the, the, the gowns and all that. But at the bottom, you can see they were wearing like, you know, high heels or really nice jeans underneath. So it's kind of like, this is kind of weird, you know, mm-hmm. no, no telling what they're like sort of in their private life. They're probably fairly normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they're walking around like that, it, it's just a really strange feeling. Mm. Anything else you saw there that was really strange? Well, a couple of things that we did was interesting. One one day we um, we heard that there was a place we could go look for shark's teeth. Evidently, millions of years ago, there were inland seas in, in the desert. And as those seas all dried up, um, evidently, sharks were were there. And the only thing that's left of them was, is their teeth. So sure enough, we went to this place and we sifted around through the sand. And I came up with you know, a bag full of shark's teeth, which was pretty cool. Took them home and made, had some made into earrings for friends and family. One of the trips that we took while I was, was at the uh, this area, this small little village I was telling you about, Kures, is we drove to Riyadh and just to kind of do a, a weekend sightseeing thing. And one of the things we noticed along the way was we started counting the wrecks. And we counted over 100 between the town of Kures and Riyadh, which was probably about a I can't remember exactly four or five hour drive um, on a, on a two lane blacktop road. We counted over a hundred wrecks. The, when, when they get in wrecks over there, they just, they just leave them. I think the Bedouins probably come out and take what they can, you know, the, the tires and God knows what else, but, but the chassis of the cars are all there. They're just all left along the side of the road. And we kind of got some firsthand inkling of how this happens because probably three or four times during this drive going around a curve and all of a sudden there would be two cars coming at us and they would literally drive us run us off the road into the desert and it was kind of a, the mentality that they have over there is you know when the time when their time is up they're going to go so they don't really um take any precautions to if they're on a curve you know they just if they're ready to pass they pass you know, pass away or pass <laughs> well, a lot of them probably do pass away <laughs> when they get in these wrecks, but um, pass to pass another car. I mean, when they're ready to pass a car, they just pass it. It doesn't matter if there's any oncoming traffic. So as we were driving down the road, there were, like I say, a few occasions where we just got written, driven off the road because there was a car coming at us. And that explains the hundred wrecks, you think? Well, it does to me, kind of. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know <laughs> how else you'd get in a wreck in the middle of nowhere. Another interesting thing is when we did get to Riyadh, we were pulling up, and it kind of goes from from desert, complete desert, to the city. There's really no, there's no in between. So you're driving out of the desert into the city, and on the outskirts they had a railroad track, and so as we pulled up, there was a train coming through. So we pulled up by this. By this time, closer to the city, the two lane had kind of spread out into four lanes. So there was two lanes going each direction. So we pulled up. The train was going by. Um, car pulled up next to us. And then pretty soon, cars start filling up the two lanes in the other direction. 
So when the train finishes, there's four lanes of traffic all facing each other. And horns start blaring, and it probably took 10 minutes for the cars to all weave around each other and get back in their lanes again. It's just, uh, you know, there's no rules, no no laws or anything. It's sort of like whatever you want to do, you do. If you, wherever you want to go, you go. But one thing I've learned from my travels is that we totally take for granted the idea of lines or queues. Yeah. I mean, you go in places in Europe and line up for the bus. And as soon as people can be in a line, but as soon as the bus comes and the door opens, everybody tries to get on before everybody else. And it just creates this big cluster F. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when you talked about seeing wrecks on the side of the road, it reminds me of my experience in Zambia, Africa. We would drive by wrecks and I would ask my host mom, let's call her, if those wrecks had just happened. And she said, well, unless you play, you pay for a private ambulance service, those wrecks have not only been there for several weeks, but the people are in there. So don't mm-hmm. rely on government services because you're going to die and stay in those mangled cars for a long time. And what it looked like to me was if you've ever seen those crashes that are then transported to the front of a high school to warn against drinking and driving, that's how bad they looked. And we saw several of them on the side of the road. So other countries do things mm-hmm. quite differently. Yeah, that's true. You have to really... Um be aware when you're traveling in other countries of what the local customs are and, you know, watch out for yourself. I want to transition into your upbringing. So you were raised in Michigan, right? You're a Michigan man? That's right. I was born and raised in Coldwater, Michigan, a little town about 30 miles south of Battle Creek, where everybody knows where the Rice Krispies are made, (laughs) and about halfway between Detroit and Chicago, very close to the Indiana border. Was that a great place to grow up? Yeah, I think it was. It was, you know, of course, we didn't know anything else. But, um, yeah, it was. Uh, I had a great childhood, I think. Um, my dad worked for a company that made, uh, well, they did two things. They made steering columns for Ford, and they made vacuum cleaners for Sears. So they had kind of two plants in a little town called Brunson, Michigan, which was 10 miles from, from where we lived in Coldwater. Him being in that business, you know, we... We got to go to Detroit a lot, and that was that was fun when I was growing up because I was a big Detroit Tigers fan and um, Red Wings. And when this is the '60s, I imagine Detroit was thriving, huh? Well, Detroit was going through a lot of upheaval at that time. Of course, this was the late '60s. There were the the riots. There were a lot of riots in Detroit. Um, but yeah, in general, it was it was a, a kind of a kind of a nice big city, I guess, to go to. That was very industrial. Um, I think back then, you know, there was lots of problems with pollution and whatnot. I know the Rouge River was a one of those rivers where you light a match and <laughs> throw it in, and the whole river would light up. That time period, there were a lot of problems, but it, you know, you're growing up, you don't really pay attention to all the negative things going on. You, you just kind of enjoying, you know, the big city life. Yeah, post World War II, the late '60s were probably the height of chaos with all the counter culture revolutions the sexual revolution yeah uh, rfk was assassinated mlk was assassinated we had vietnam i mean vietnam. There, there was lots of reasons for sort of revolution and revolts a lot of the young people didn't want didn't agree with the war and you know were very vocal about it so there were lots of protests and that sort of thing going on so yeah it was a pretty tumultuous time the 60s was really an int- when i look back on it um, it was a really interesting time period, not only from that aspect of it, but the music. I mean, you know, it was just a special sort of a time. What were the riots about? They were all race riots, basically. The um, 
African-American community back then and, uh, you know, still today, I think probably in the bigger cities feel like they're, they're targeted um, by law enforcement for various reasons. And, um, you know, the, their standard of living was poor. There was a lot of poverty. These kind of things, I think, reach a breaking point and then anything can happen. Same thing happened in L.A. during the Watts riots. Um, I mean, all the big cities, I'm sure, had their share of these terrible riots going on. A lot of people were killed. A lot of businesses destroyed. Um in Detroit, for example, um, there was one main street there that was just completely destroyed, businesses burned and everything. So it was, it was, um, yeah, kind of an anxious period. Do you have any favorite sports memories from going to Detroit? When I was growing up, uh, we used to go to the, some hockey games. My my dad, when he got out of the war, he was a Canadian citizen, so he was in the Canadian Navy. When he got out of the war, he um, came to the to the u.s and became a naturalized citizen met my mother etc but he played hockey so he was on a semi-pro hockey team in toledo so he used to get some really good seat uh tickets for the red wing games so we used to go in and see the red wings play quite frequently so i remember one time in hockey of course there's two two there's three periods so there's two times where you know you can get up and go to the bathroom and stuff so between periods we were walking into the restroom and i was probably 10 years old so i was pretty impressionable and these these two big guys come walking out of the restroom you know it turned out to be alex karras who was a uh, a linebacker for the lions at the time and wayne walker who was also um like an inside linebacker these guys were of course when i'm 10 years old these guys looked like they were 30 feet tall you know they were huge and of course Alex Karras, if people remember him, he was he was 350 pounds or something like that. And I remember he shook my hand and said something to me, and I was in awe. And I remember that I felt like his, my whole hand was engulfed by his hand. You know, his he when we shook hands, his hand went up to my elbow. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was really impressionable. Didn't you ride an elevator with Heather Heather Locklear one time? Well, I did, but that was here in New Orleans. Mm. That was. Uh, <laughs> That was, geez, how long ago was that? Well, she was, her TV show, whatever show she was in at the time. It was popular at the time. That's why I remember that. <laughs> I think I was a teenager and had a little crush myself. And I think Melrose Place was the show that she I was on. I can't remember. But I remember how short she was. I got in the elevator. The elevator door closed. She literally was three feet tall. I mean, <laughs> like, literally three yeah, feet yeah, tall. Yeah, I mean, she was very, very short. That's about the only thing I remember about her. But I looked at her and... I didn't really say anything to her, and she kind of looked at me like, yeah, I'm Heather Locklear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, is there anything that your dad taught you as a kid that has really stuck with you? Gee, that's a good question. I'm sure there were probably lots of things that he taught me that weren't sort of overtly something that I remember. I think he had a big influence on me. The one thing I remember about him, and I wished I could have been more like this when my kids were small, the thing that I remembered about him was he could discipline me with a look. He was just the kind of guy that if I was doing something and he looked at me in a particular way, I knew I was doing the wrong thing. And I stopped. And it wasn't because he ever laid a hand on me or anything. He just had that quality about him that demanded respect, I guess. And like I say, when I was a, a father with young kids, you know, my kids ran all over the house and <laughs> never listened to a word I said. So it was kind of like I wished I'd had that quality. Do you think his military background had something to do with that? It could have. When the war was over, they had a um, on in VE Day, 
they he like I said he was in the Canadian Navy, so he was stationed in Halifax, and on VE Day, the celebrations in Halifax were. I mean, they they tore the city apart. The city was just <laughs> destroyed from the celebration. And he was in a bar with some of his friends, and there was a lot of animosity between the Canadians and the English military. I, I don't know why, but there just kind of was. So my dad got up to go to the bathroom in this pub in Halifax, and these three or four English soldiers followed him in and beat the living crap out of him. And his friends knew that he'd been there a long time, so they they went in to see about him. And he was kind of he was just laying on the floor in a heap. And these guys had left him there, and he had scars on his face, you know, the rest of his life from that incident. And he never really explained to me what happened, what what caused it or anything. I think I think it was the wrong place, wrong time kind of a thing. But just a kind of interesting <laughs> story about PE day. That's happened to me twice, where I've gotten left behind in a bathroom and been jumped one no time kidding. i got put in a headlock and really thought i was gonna die <laughs> when it happens out of nowhere you you can't really defend yourself i was standing at a urinal and just kind of got choked from behind and put in a headlock and i was like oh shit i started tapping out and you know there was no referee to <laughs> let me get out of there but luckily my friend came back into the the restroom and then another time there were four guys that surrounded me and i was at the urinal and they started talking shit and the way that i was able to talk my way out of it is I recognized their accent and I knew a relatively famous person from their small town and so I asked if they knew him and uh, they were from south of the bayou down the bayou you know that cut off Galliano mm -hmm. golden meadow accent and so I asked do you know Ross West he was a guy that I played basketball with and he was a real star in their area so I kind of found common ground and they ended up letting me out of the bathroom but um yeah so I spared my ass on well, that since one. you were at the urinal both times, you ever think about just turning around and pissing on him? <laughs> well, I figure it's just jealousy. You know, I don't know what they can see. <laughs> uh <-huh>. oh. <laughs> did your dad talk about his war experience much? No, he never really did. He was kind of a quiet guy in that respect. He was not a minesweeper. And he would tell me maybe, a, you know, stories that were real short <laughs> about, for example, they all had these little shot glasses that were made out of copper and everybody on his boat had one and they all got a ration of rum every day they get a shot of rum this was just sort of standard practice so what they would do is they would play cribbage and in and gamble their shots of rum right when he taught me how to play cribbage he taught me how to cheat <laughs> because you know the better you could cheat at cribbage the more shots of rum you got so he was, it's called Pusser Rum. I don't know if it was very good or not, but that was just something that they got during the Navy. So he told me a few stories about winning shots of <laughs> shots of rum and that kind of stuff. I asked him one time what he did, and he told me he was an engine room artisifer. And to this day, I have no idea what an engine room artisifer even does. Um, but that's, that's what he was. I, I don't know that he had, other than that experience in Halifax, I, I don't know that he had any traumatic war stories or anything like that but he didn't he never really talked about it a lot where did they send him well i don't know exactly i mean it was just out in the ocean <laughs> you know he i don't think he actually was stationed anywhere overseas um like i said he was in the canadian navy so i think he spent most of his time in canadian ports and then uh, you know whatever wherever the minesweepers went to sweep for mines I would imagine, you know, North Atlantic. You and I watched Chernobyl together a few months ago, and it was great yeah. to watch it with you because 
it seems like you're very knowledgeable about the inner workings of nuclear plants. Yeah. Why, how is that? Well, <laughs> well, during the recession in the mid-80s, I left my job in Houston um, because the, so many people were getting laid off. I decided to kind of head that off the pass by finding a job before I got laid off. So I went back to Arkansas. That's where I went to college. Um, we moved to Little Rock, and I got a job with Arkansas Power and Light Company. There again, as a control systems instrument engineer. But while I was there, I got the opportunity, pretty rare opportunity, to uh, apply for a program to work at their nuclear plant. They have a, they have a, two nuclear plants up in Russellville, Arkansas, a place called Arkansas Nuclear One. And at this time, um, all the nuclear plants in the country were implementing the Three Mile Island Action Plan. So after Three Mile Island, um, the, the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission imposed a lot of new regulations on all the facilities to make them safe, make them safer, or make them seem safer, maybe. Um, so one of the things that they elected to do was, the problem through Mile Island was they didn't have any engineers on shift, and the operators didn't understand what was happening from a thermodynamic point of view. They didn't recognize what was happening with their instruments and so forth, and that was, that led up, one of the things that led up to the, to the incident. So in their infinite wisdom, then the NRC decided, well, after that, we need to put degreed engineers on shift with the operators. So if this ever happens again, they can consult with the engineers and understand what's happening. So out of this was a program by which um, we could apply to become, the, they were called STA, shift technical advisors. So I was one of six guys chosen to be able to do this. So I went up to Arkansas Nuclear One and went through an operator training program that lasted three years. And out of it, I got to be a senior reactor operator license. So in getting that license, obviously, we had to learn, you know, the plant in, you know, forwards and backwards. So that's kind of where, where my exposure to the nuclear industry uh, came from. Could something like Chernobyl happen again? Uh, well, Chernobyl happened because the Soviet style reactors were completely different from the our reactors the in the united states and actually elsewhere around the world so you know you hes hesitate to say never i don't really know the state of the of the soviet or the, i'm not soviet anymore but the russian commercial reactors are i don't know um how they've changed their design i think as a result of that show chernobyl i mean we saw at the end of it that it was made public, that they had a fatal flaw in their design. So you'd like to think that, yeah, that they've corrected that flaw. So, I, you know, I'd like to think that that kind of accident couldn't happen again, but I don't know enough about their design to say one way or the other. I can say that our design, you know, in the United States, we have what they've engineered them with what they call defense in depth. So, so there's three barriers between the nuclear fuel and the environment. And Three Mile Island proved that that, that sort of design works because it was all contained in the reactor building. So, you know, I, I think nuclear, um, the, nu the nuclear power industry is safe and can be done safely. Um, I think one of the things we're finding is that all of these nuclear plants that were designed and went into operation in the 70s and have a 30-year lifespan or a 40-year lifespan if they, if they um, were granted an extension – now, all these nuclear plants are going to start, you know, going out of service soon and where there's nothing to replace them. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens in the in the 
power industry here in the next 10 years or so with all these nuclear plants, you know, coming close to the, to the end of their useful lives. So I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I was asked one time to give an interview to a reporter who was doing a story on nuclear power. So they came to our facility and they were going to interview various people. So my supervisor um, asked if I'd be willing to do this to represent sort of my group. So they interviewed, you know, probably 10 or 15 people, maybe 20 people. I don't even know. And he he said that um, that this article was going to be, you know, out on the wire. Either I can't remember it was AP or UPI or whatever it was. So I, th- I said, yeah, I'll do it. So anyway, this girl came, a young reporter, and um, we talked for probably about an hour. She asked me all these questions. Do I feel safe working in nuclear power? You know, do I feel safe with my family living in the town where a nuclear plant exists? And, you know, all these kind of questions. So I, you know, I answered her truthfully and um, we talked for quite a while. So, well, you know, a few months went by and this article never showed up. So I went to my boss one day and I said, whatever happened to this article? I, you know, I'd like to read, you know, did she quote me in this article? And he said, well, they never did the article because it was too positive. <laughs> Nobody had anything negative to say about nuclear power or the safety of it. So they did, there was no story. Mm. So they didn't, so they killed the story. And I just thought that was interesting because one of the things that I felt we never did a good job of in the nuclear industry was, was education. Um, I always felt like they should spend money to put a group of people together to go to schools and go to churches and go to wherever and give talks about nuclear power and, and the safety of it. Because all you ever read about was how unsafe it was. And I never felt that way. I mean, I was in the middle of it. And I, and I just always thought that it got a bad rap and that it was an education thing. And we never spent the time or money to do that. So I just thought it was interesting. It still gets a bad rap today, right? It's kind of become politicized. It, yeah, I think it has. I mean, um, there again, it's it's the unknown, fear of the unknown. I mean, people look at Chernobyl and they look at Three Mile Island and they, they think it's a doomsday scenario kind of a thing. Fukushima, didn't they have something recently? Where's that? Fukushima? Oh, in Japan. Yeah, that, well, that, that was when that tidal wave hit. Yeah, mm. they had an earthquake and the tidal wave hit over there. And yeah, they had a, they had a, a big problem. But there again, I mean... The safety systems that they build into those kind of plants, that, that sort of an occurrence was sort of unheard of, you know, that how could you ever envision that sort of a thing? So they did have a lot of problems and it had some, I can't remember if they had any fuel actually melt down or not, but, um, you know, those kind of things are, you know, you can design for that. And one of the, one of the things that I know that our plants are designed for is the reactor buildings are built to withstand the force of a vehicle, like a car, something that weighs, you know, maybe a ton or a couple of tons, hitting it um, with a force of like a, at a speed of 100 miles an hour. So it's it's kind of designed around a tornado, for example, that might lift up a car and slam it into the side of a reactor building. So they're designed for some pretty harsh conditions. Um, you can't design for everything. And, you know, that's so I suppose that's the element of it that the public is still a little leery of, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, it's safe. It can be very safe. What do you think? Is nuclear power the future? Well, I think it, yeah, I think it probably is because I think depending on who you believe or or um, what you know about the, the coal industry, we either have an unlimited supply of coal, we just got to go get it, 
or we don't have an unlimited supply of coal and we're, and it's going to run out. Um, either way, we have to look for other viable sources of, of energy. And I think nuclear, probably nuclear fusion is, uh, is a, you know, a technology that, that they're looking into very seriously. But yeah, I think it could be done safely, and I think that we, I think we're, we need to look at nuclear in the future because you know, coal's not going to last forever. What is your future? The near future is for me to go back to China soon to finish out this project. I'll be there for probably a year. Come back and then spend a year on the plant to get it up and running, and then retire. Where is that plant? It's going to be down on the Texas Gulf Coast near Corpus Christi. Okay, so you live in New Orleans. You're going to be traveling to China for a year. Then you move to live in Texas, Corpus Christi? We'll be down there for about a year, yeah, in Corpus Christi or that area for about a year. And then the plant starts up at the end of next year, 2021, towards the end of the year. By December, it should be started up. So at that time, I don't know. I'll see what's going on. I mean, I feel like it's probably time to retire. I took a temporary retirement a couple of years ago. Um, because your mom surgery, she needed some, somebody to, to stay with her. So I, um, you know, stayed home for close to a year, not working, kind of taking care of her and, and seeing what retirement might look like and discovered that I wasn't ready for retirement. I mean, I was crawling the walls after about three months. So when this project came along, I kind of jumped at it because this is a world-class project. It's very large. It's going to be a one-of-a-kind project. I always like to be involved in those kinds of things. So I jumped at the chance to get on this job. But, you know, once this job is over at the end of 21, I probably will be ready by then to retire. So um, I don't know. We'll see. And you would retire to New Orleans, you think? Oh, yeah, I think so. I love New Orleans. Um, We moved here in the late 90s. Um, and I can't think of any other place. I mean, I've been in a lot of places around the world and there's a lot of cool places that I would live, but it just all comes back to New Orleans. I think this is where I want to retire. Yeah. Mm. What do you love about New Orleans? I just love the, um, the history, the, um, the sort of the flavor of the city. Um, I love the restaurants, obviously. I, I like all the things that where you tick the boxes. I mean, I like the music, um, the food. All of that. The fact that there's something going on all the time. Every weekend, there's something happening. And you don't have to go far to, to see what it is. And there's so much to do, not only in New Orleans, but around New Orleans. You know, you got the plantations and you got festivals all summer long. And you got, you know, just city park and just, you know, tons of things to do here. And you're close to doing, um, you know, going anywhere else you want to go. I mean, if you want to go on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, take a day ride if you want to. Go down to the coast, you know, whatever. You know, this just seems to be a good location for, you know, going anywhere. Yeah, and you live in a prime spot. So you're about four or five blocks off the river in what's called Algiers Point, And you can walk to the ferry and then take the ferry across the river and be in the French Quarter in a matter of 15, 20 minutes, which is pretty right. cool. Yeah. And then as long as you get back to the ferry by about midnight, then... You can. You never have to get in a car. You can get as drunk as you want to get. <laughs> well, yeah, those home. days are kind of behind me, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it is nice because there is no place to park over there, as you know, especially during Jazz Fest or or Mardi Gras or whenever there's something going on. So yeah, it's it's nice to be able to be over there in the middle of the mayhem, and then thirty minutes later, literally be back in your quiet little neighborhood 
um, which this is. So yeah, it's, I, I think it's a nice spot. We we considered selling this house and moving to to Houston when uh, when I was working over there on this project, and then coming back to New Orleans and you know finding another house, for example. But we just liked this spot so well, this this area so well that we thought, nah, we'll just hang on to it because this is, you know, for retirement, this is this is probably the right place to be. Yeah, and this is a great house. It's a shotgun house, as they call it, right? I heard the guy that came here last night to look at your water heater say that it looks very small from the front, but then you come inside and it's just huge. Yeah. <laughs> so it's got a neat design. Well, it's a yeah, I think it's, it's kind of similar to the double wide shotgun. So it's kind of, you know, a regular shotgun house is just sort of one room wide where, where ours is double that. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting design. I, it's one of the reasons I love this neighborhood because... Um, there's so many old houses here and it's, you know, in that in that stage of restoration where people are coming in and, you know, sinking money into to these old homes and making them really look nice again. So it's it's kind of a quiet neighborhood, but still got a lot of history to it as well. And this is a relatively newer home, but had to be built to historical standards. Yeah, this house um, sits on a lot that the house that was here before burned down, evidently. I don't know the exact year, but I want to say right around the 2001, maybe maybe late 90s even. Um, and it sat here vacant, I understand, for a while. And then a guy came along and built this this house. And it did have to be built to yeah the, the standards of the historical society. You know, they set some pretty rigorous standards. Um, so when people look at house, they don't know that it's a new house. But yet we have closets. <laughs> um we have things that are in a new house, whereas you go into these older homes, they don't have closets and they don't have a lot of these sort of other things that we were able to find in this home. So we get the sort of the best of both worlds. I want to go back to you saying that you were feeling like you'd, you'd be ready to retire. Why is that? You seem sharp and energetic and um, you said you were crawling up the walls after about three months of of being in semi-retirement. Well, when I say retirement, I don't mean sitting in a chair all day long and doing nothing. I'd find something else to do. I think it, but what I'm thinking is that it's time for me to stop sort of that um, episode in my life, I guess, of doing that one thing, you know, control system engineering and, and just start doing something else. I don't think I'd sit and do nothing, but I'd find something. My, what, what I'd love to do is, is, you know, have a little bookstore, <laughs> You know, those are just so passe. There's you can't do that anymore. But you know, that would have been my dream sort of retirement job is just to work in a little mom and pop bookstore, for example, um, something like that. So I, you know, I'll find something to do. I had an author on this podcast last week, and he was saying how hard it is to sell books nowadays because so many people are are not reading. Mm-hmm. And when you think about how popular podcasts have become and how popular Netflix is and blogs and all that it makes sense twitter social media all that time spent doing those things is not spent reading books so um have you have do you read a lot less than you used to because of all these things because i know you used to be a big time reader no i think i still read as much the thing that's different for me is i was very resistant to going to an electronic reader like a nook um i always felt like i needed to feel the pages in my hand and I, used, and I did read a lot, but then um, my wife bought me a reader for Christmas one year, and I kind of it kind of sat there for a few months. I didn't really, you know, this really isn't for me kind of a thing. And then finally, I, I, out of necessity, I guess one day I finished a book and I didn't have another one to read, so I picked up this Nook, 
ordered a book and read it online or read, I say online, I read it, you know, electronically. And I've kind of never looked back. I've probably read over a hundred books that way now. And I find it very conducive to reading because you're it, it's immediately available. I don't have to stop, you know, finish a book and then wait till I go to the bookstore to buy a new book. You know, I can just get one instantaneously and I can have two or three going at once, which I, you know, do frequently. So, no, I find that I'm probably reading more, actually, not less. What are you reading right now? The Memoirs of Cleopatra. <laughs> Sounded interesting. Um, I like the the uh, um, historical kind of novels, that sort of thing, kind of piqued my curiosity. So it sounded interesting, and I'm kind of in the middle of it. It's not bad. It's not great, <laughs> but it's not bad. So you don't even get a recommendation from someone? You read about something and decide whether you're going to read it? Yeah, I think w- the way I normally do is I've got a, a handful of authors that I kind of look for that I that I enjoy reading their stuff. And so, I, you know, Ken Follett is probably one of my favorite author, authors, and he's written some really, really good historical novels where it's sort of over the sweep of time kind of a thing where he weaves um, fiction stories of families um, in amongst sort of the landscape of history using real historical people as well fitting kind of fitting it all together in a real entertaining way so i've read several of his books that where he does that he's got he has um a trilogy of books out that kind of cover a, you know, several centuries of time and i read other authors where that kind of go back and and weave historical things into you know fictional kind of settings that kind of thing so i enjoy that Edward Rutherford is another one. Right? Yeah, he's one told that I me enjoy a lot. Him. Yeah. When you retire, will there be a price tag that you put on yourself? Like, where if they threw you a shit ton of money, you might get up <laughs> off the leave or, the bookstore and take a job in Russia or something? Yeah, sure. I mean, if the money is like crazy, I probably would. I mean, I've even told my supervisor that even after this job is over, on a consulting basis or something, I'd be willing to to work. I just don't think I'd want to do another full time four year long you know, intense project like this one is. If I could do something where I could just sort of jump in and jump out, um, you know, review documents or or maybe help with the design of this or that, but not full-time, you know, just sort of do it on my own terms. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you could be really picky about where you go. You've been to some really cool places. I would think that your career has had a big influence on what I'm doing now because I had never traveled out of the country until you went to the Netherlands to work. Mm -hmm. And this was 2003. I had just graduated from college and I got to experience how people live in Europe because you were living there, you and my mom. Mm -hmm. And so that was really cool. I got to go down to Paris and, and that might be where the impetus for my desire to travel started. I don't know, but... (laughs) Um, and you've also been to Korea? Yeah, I've been to some pretty nice places, and I've been to some not-so-nice places. You kind of have to go where the work is. But, yeah, um, you know, Korea is definitely one of the places I enjoyed being. Uh, Japan is nice. I was there this last year several times, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I was on a job in Angola, which wasn't fun you know going in and out of uh, luanda is not a pleasant experience do they pay you more to go to angola than they would the netherlands yeah i mean you go to some of these sort of third world countries and the uplift is more like i was saying earlier you know the uplift is based on quality of living and that sort of thing so you know you go to the netherlands i you know didn't you don't get much of an uplift because it's 
not really bad duty over there. Um, but yeah, you go to places like um, Russia, um, Angola, Middle East, you're going to get higher uplifts. Do they protect you when you travel those places? They protect you as much as they can, I guess. I mean, they don't physically protect you, but they do protect you with safety guidelines and a lot of um, resources that you can turn to if you feel you're in a threatening position or whatever. They do a lot of training about how you handle yourself in third world countries and that sort of thing. How do you make sure that you minimize the risk that you're a target, for example, um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, they, they protect you in, in sort of ways that aren't physical. What's the biggest scare you had? I was on a project where we built a big, it's called an FPSO, floating production, all floating and storage um, vehicle or uh, ship uh, in South Korea. And then we did commissioning of the systems on that while it was being towed to its final destination, which was Angola, off, offshore um, Angola. So that trip was an interesting one in that I was on board this vessel being towed across the Indian Ocean. I was there for about six weeks before we did a crew change. And I wouldn't say it was scary, but the scariest potential thing was that they put us through a lot of drills for being boarded by pirates. Um, At that time, there were, and still, in fact, there's a lot of pirate activity around um, Somalia. So so our route was going to take us right off the coast of Somalia going down to the tip of Africa. So we did a lot of drills on board about, you know, how we were, what was going to happen if we got boarded or that sort of thing. So that was kind of scary, but it never materialized. I mean, nothing ever happened. And I, I, I really don't remember being in any kind of physical jeopardy or anything anywhere. So well, I, I think I've been pretty safe for most places I've been. This, this China coronavirus thing is probably the most risky thing i've actually kind of been around and right now you're just in a holding pattern waiting to be told when to go back yeah um i'm due to go back next week but right now if they don't change the restrictions um i probably will delay it a little bit um currently and it changes every day every day is a new situation it's so such a fluid thing um currently today if i go back um the plane of expats that i'm on that are flying into the country Evidently, they they come on the plane and they do some testing of everybody on the plane. And if anybody on the plane either exhibits, you know, comes up positive for the coronavirus or has any symptoms, you then have to go to a government hotel for a 14-day mandatory quarantine. And that's just not something I'm prepared to do. So once they lift that restriction, I'll be glad to go back. I don't mind doing a self-quarantine. In fact, I expect to, um, when I go back to Yantai, back to Marriott, I'll stay in my room for 14 days. Um, or if I go to Penglai, I'll stay in, I'll stay there for 14 days. But I'm not going to go to some government hotel with a bunch of people that I don't know where they've been and, you know, flying in on, on a commercial flight from God knows where. So, yeah, I don't want to play. When you, were, when you were eating off of that fixed menu in China and you were on your way back to the States, is there any sort of foods that you really <laughs> desired? Well, I told my wife um, to stock up. Of course, Mardi Gras was kind of underway. So I said, we need to have king cake. We need to have pedophores. Um, Yeah, I mean, just as much junk food as we could possibly get. <laughs> and of course, then when I got home, you know, we went to our favorite restaurants, like the shrimp stew at the Wabbit down here. Mm. Um, 
So, yeah, I've been eating like a pig since I've been back. Mm. One thing I'm curious about, at my wedding, I talked about how I've always tried to take the character traits of men that I admire and incorporate those into my own character. So what I learned from you at a, what I think is a critical time of my life, I met you in eighth grade, probably. I was 13 years old, yeah. so I've known you for about 25 years. Um, and then that's a time when you're young and impressionable. Um, I learned how not to be reactive because by not reacting negatively to things or getting pissed off too easily, I find that you in particular, you had a calming influence on those around you, my mom in particular. Is that something that you got from someone? I don't know if I did. or I, I can't think of anybody in my family I got that from. I never really have thought about it, to be honest with you. I always kind of viewed that sort of characteristic of mine as being, I don't know, sort of, uh, I don't know, the easy way out. In other words, I'm not a combative person. I don't confront situations. You know, I'm not the I'm not the sort of person that goes to a restaurant and gets you know some cold French fries and bitches at the at waitress. You know, I mean, I just I just let things go. Mm-hmm. It's just because it's easier. It's easier to let things go. So I do it probably because it's it's not something I think about and I say this is the best course of action or whatever. Um, I just do it because it's easier. But do you feel the emotions well up inside you before you do the easy thing of letting it go? I don't think so. I mean, um, I can't remember any specific instances where I've been all sort of tied up in knots about something, you know. I think I just look at situations that come up and, you know, I don't know, just sort of process them in a way that takes me away from the having to make a decision, I guess, Mm. (laughs) you know. And you probably learned patience from having three kids, right? Yeah, I was a very sort of laid back father. I mean, my kids, as I mentioned earlier, my dad had that look that I, that I knew when I'd done something wrong. My kids never knew that. I I didn't have that look. So, I yeah, I was I you know, they probably got a lot of, away with a lot more than what they would have gotten away with had my dad been <laughs> their dad. Um but I, yeah, I don't I don't find that it was a real problem. I mean, you know, my kids were, were pretty good. I mean, I, thankfully, all three of my kids were, you know, good kids, got good grades and, you know, were pretty well behaved and that sort of thing. So um, I don't I never really had a, an issue with discipline or anything like that. So you've been married 20 years twice, basically. Yeah, been married. Well, yeah, that's right. So many of my listeners are about my age mm-hmm. and they've been married five, 10, 15 years and they have young kids do you have any advice for young parents? No, I don't think so. I mean, other, other than, yeah, just being um, patient. I think that's probably the biggest thing. Don't jump jump and grab just because something has happened in this second and you and you do something that maybe you might regret doing or whatever or say something you might regret saying. So, no, I mean, there, I don't think there's any magic you can put to it. I think it's just patience. Um what kids about? are so different nowadays. I mean, mm. when my when my kids were small and when you were small, of course, there was no internet, there was no social media, there was no computers and stuff like that. Nowadays, that's I, I don't know how I would deal with kids at this age because you have to protect them from so much more mm. um, that's out there. So I don't know. I, I you know I'm probably the last person to give any advice on parenting right now. Yeah, I was talking to a girl at a parade the other day who's my age. I say a girl. We're now 40. And she was telling me that they had blocked websites at their home so that their son couldn't access pornography and things like that. 
uh, but that he found a workaround in which he would get on like the LTE on his phone and access those sites. And she and her husband were astounded. They were amazed. Like, how did you do this? And so, you know, kids are going to figure out these workarounds. And I have other buddies who some of my best friends who are adamant about how their son is never going to be able to access pornography. He's like eight or nine years old now. And I'm like, dude, that's going to happen. Like you get to 13, 14 years old, you're going to figure out a way to see that stuff because it's ubiquitous nowadays. So I know I asked you advice for kids, but I like to ask men's advice who've been married twice for 20 years each because I would think they would have more valuable insight than someone who's been married for 40 years once. I think, you know, you have varying experiences and you learn a lot. And I know that I've always said that you're one of the smartest people I know. So you absorb a lot and I'm sure you reflect and you learn a lot of things. Um, what advice do you have for people who are my age that are have been married for 10 or 15 years? Well, I think it's the same thing. I think it's patience. So I think, the, you know, the the person that you're living with you know, has their own life to live. They have their own feelings about things. They have their own opinions about things. And I think it's a matter, I think people get along when they respect each other's opinions and don't tread too heavily upon the other person's um, values and and feelings about different things. You know, don't try to impose your will on, on your partner, I guess is maybe a way to put it. It just goes back to the, you know, just being easy going about it you know take things in stride when you have to work things out work them out um when you don't have things to work out you know just enjoy being together all marriages are different i've been in two um they were different both of them are different and you you know you just sort of react different you react to fit in i think with the person that you're with you want to you want to make and it, go, it goes back to the thing with me about being laid back i guess is there again, I want to avoid conflict. So, you know, whenever the opportunity for conflict arises, which happens <laughs> quite a lot, you know, I look for ways around it. You know, how do how you know how do I get out of this sort of situation? What can I say that'll sort of diffuse this, or um, w- what can I do to get things back on an even keel again? And we don't have any th- issues that are, you know, terrible, but. You know, every day, thing, you know, things come along where you can react this way or you can react this way. And I always try to find the, the path of least resistance, I guess, is a way to put it. So I think I think that's probably it. Maybe just patience. Something that's interesting today is when a couple divorces, you can see it on Facebook. All of a sudden, they don't have a picture of them as a couple. And for the rest of history, you didn't really know unless you were living in a small tribe. Uh, but modern times dictates there shows us that we can see as couples are starting to divorce. And unfortunately, I'm in an age where a lot of my friends are on their second divorce or second marriage. I used to say that I was I got married so late in life because I was trying to avoid that first <laughs> that first <laughs> one. And just jump. Yeah, you're not going to have time for two twenty. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, how hard was it for um, the the divorce you went through? How hard was that? Oh, it was hard, but mo- mostly I think for the kids. Um, you know, anybody with small kids hates to put them through anything like that, any kind of angst. And you went through that firsthand, so you know what it's like. For me, the hardest part is trying to maintain some sort of a feeling for the kids that, you know, trying to keep things as consistent as possible, you know, making them feel as safe as possible, that, you know, that we weren't pitting us against them, um, that that they were the main focus for both of us. And, and so... 
you know, it, it's never easy. I'm sure any divorce is, is terrible, but you know, things happen in life and I'm sure you tried like hell to reconcile. Yeah. You know, you, you, you try as much as you can. I think, you know, with, with the passage of time, you kind of look back on things and you say, well, you know, should I have done this? Should I have done that? But when you're in the heat of the moment and you, you know, your mind is, is in one mindset, you don't have the clarity of, of the future to, to, I don't know, to bring to bear, you know, how can I do something different? Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. It's easier to do when you're looking back from a distance of 10 years than it is when you're in the moment. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's more of an emotional thing or maybe it's um, an intellectual thing. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. I think high emotion clouds our judgment yeah. and reasoning faculties. What's your biggest regret as it pertains to all that? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I have any real regrets. I think probably spending more time with the kids. I think during that time when I was a younger parent, you know, the kids are so involved in so many different things. They're going, they're, you know, they're, you know, my girls were in cheer, you know, they enjoyed doing cheerleading and stuff. Kevin was in Boy Scouts and lots of different kind of activities. So, you know, I tended to be sort of an absent parent, you know, which I think probably a lot of parents get to because of, because their kids are involved in so many other things. And I think what I regret most is maybe not, you know, I still think they should have been involved in all those things, but I should have been more involved at that time. As, and instead of kind of shooing them off to go take part in all those things, I should have probably taken part with them more. Mm. I kind of regret that. But, and you have a great relationship with them now? Oh, yeah. I think I'm, I'm probably the best terms with them that I've ever been on. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I... That's good to hear. Uh, do you, and you have grandkids now? Yeah, got um, how many grandkids do we got? So my son's got um, twins, and my oldest daughter's got two kids. So we got four on sort of my side, and then of course Debbie has um, Scott's kids, three kids there. So yeah, very cool. The numbers keeps rising. My uh, my son has announced recently that he's going to be a, a new father soon. So. We'll welcome another one. Very good. And when you're retired and you have a bookstore, because I'm going to encourage you to own the bookstore <laughs> rather than work there, then you can spend more time with your kids and grandkids. That's true because, well, and one of the things I'm looking forward to on this project is the last year of it is going to be down in Corpus Christi. And my son lives in Victoria, Texas, which is only 20 miles or 30 miles or so from there. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity of seeing a lot more of those grandkids, which we which we don't see real often, obviously. So, um, yeah, that's going to be fun. Very cool. All right, I'm going to ask some fun, quick questions, and then we'll wrap up. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right, you're sort of a music buff, aren't you? Sort of. If you were stuck on an island and can only have one album to listen to, what would it be? Dark Side of the Moon. Is that Pink Floyd? That's Pink Floyd. Hmm. Best concert you've ever been to? David Gilmour. Who is that? Pink Floyd. <laughs> okay, my bad. <laughs> He's the, he's the lead guitar player. If you had a chance to go to the moon tomorrow, but you had to be gone for six months and it would cost, let's say, 10% of your retirement savings, would you go? To the moon? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I mean, I can go to the moon on TV. Oh. I don't have to experience the moon. I know what it's like. I heard an interview with an astronaut recently who said that the spectacular view of Earth that he was going to get once he got up there was not awe-inspiring at all because he had seen it on the internet so much. 
I worry about that. I, I tell Miriam all the time before we go somewhere, I don't want to see pictures of it. Mm-hmm. I want to be surprised when I get there. Um, when how, I went, can you, how can you avoid them? It's hard. Yeah. When I went to Zambia on a safari, there were kids that were five and seven in our Jeep. And they were not as impressed with the giraffes and the lions because they had been to so many zoos growing up. And so I remember thinking, should I be blessed with kids someday? I'm not taking them to the zoo. I'm going to save up and we're going to go to Africa when they're five because I'll just appreciate it that much more. Yeah, well, that's probably a good plan. Good luck with so, that. No, <laughs> yeah, right. No interest in the moon, huh? No, I, I'm probably more interested in Mars or someplace like that. Mm. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Me and Elon Musk. Yeah. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? Boy, that's a good question. There's not really a whole lot of things I need. Um, probably buy a, a quiet little place somewhere in the mountains or on a stream. You know, one of these idyllic little getaway places, I suppose, you know, just to have. And then and then a really, really nice four-wheel something or other to get me in and out of there, Range Rover or something. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think I'd buy a, a big ostentatious house or something like that or car. I got a nice car. I got a place to live. So I, I don't know exactly. I never really thought about it. I think I would just live on it, you know? Just maybe increase your lifestyle by by a few thousand dollars every month. Well, we'd probably do a lot of traveling. We'd probably say, mm-hmm. and we'd probably travel better. Like we'll get a couple of first class tickets to go to Calgary, you know, and spend a, a month, you know, go to the Fairmont, Banff Fairmont Hotel or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. That's a great idea. You've been a tour guide for me in that area. And I love it. But I have to say that of all the places that I have been, and I've been to some pretty cool places, Canada is probably the best place. I've been fortunate enough to be in Calgary. Um, we were there for a couple of years. And then Newfoundland, which I was pleasantly surpri- surprised at how really awesome uh, Newfoundland is. So, yeah, I mean, up there is great. And those are on the opposite sides of Canada, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People wanted to connect with you online. Where would be the best place to find you? Well, I'm kind of um, a newbie to the social media thing, but probably Facebook. Um, I'm on Facebook. I don't do a lot on Facebook. So, yeah, you can find me there. Cool. I told you this would be fun. Was I right? Yeah, it was good. I was a little apprehensive. I don't mind telling you. But uh, no, it's fun. It's good. Cool. Well, great. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Hoss. Great to be here. <laughs> All, right. All right. Friends, thank you for joining us today. I never do take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with us. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.